0: We used to have a strategic inventory of medical supplies and PPEs. This started during the Clinton administration, was built significantly during the Bush administration, was completely withered away during the Obama administration and then Trump we got to the point where we had no national inventory. So the first thing is to start a national inventory. We don't need it forever. We need to cover about three or four months because industries adjust. We saw it with ventilator, we saw it with masks, we saw it with many other items.
1: You need something while they're adjusting to fill in the crack. Exactly, you need to cover the adjustment period. This is Swarfcast, I'm Noah Graf. Our guest on today's show is Professor Yossi Sheffi, author of a new book, The New Abnormal, Reshaping Business and Supply Chain Strategy Beyond COVID-19. Sheffi explained to me how companies and governments around the world have dealt with the supply chain disruption over the past year's pandemic and gave insight on how people can prepare for the next time the world's supply chain is turned on its head. Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.g-r-a-f-f-p-i-n-k-e-r-t.com. I am very honored to be with Yossi Sheffi, professor of engineering at MIT. He is the director of the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics, and he is the author of a new book, The New Abnormal, Reshaping Business and Supply Chain Strategy Beyond COVID-19. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I I think it's just a super relevant, important thing we have to explore right now. So I I really appreciate that.
0: Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me, Noah.
1: Yeah. So just to start out, I want to get to the real basics. uh, And then I'm going to get a quick story on you. But let's just take it from square one. How do you
0: define supply chain? supply chain is a series of activities that take place from the earliest form of a of a product going through from the from mining or agriculture basic uh, material that come from the earth to a finished product to a series of supplier transportation uh, carriers you know custom brokers what have you going through the world shipping and making and shipping chain until it gets to a retail store, gets to the consumer and actually all the way back to um, responsibly getting rid of it.
1: I like that. Yeah, that's that is the final stage of everything, isn't it? Yep. Now, you are one of the foremost supply chain experts in the world How did you get there? Give me the three minute life story to get to where you are. What what do you know that you've gathered from all of the all of your experiences? You're from Israel. You studied engineering, which is, you know, a a lot of our listeners are engineers. So, I mean, you can totally you're on their level. Give me the, the, the real quick version.
0: Okay, so I uh, studied civil engineering as a technician in Israel, came to MIT, and uh, there I started studying operation research, which is basically applied mathematics, and um, did a lot of work in network theory. Originally, I applied it to uh, urban transportation planning and transits and people transportation, but that was pretty frustrating because I realized that nobody was applying what I thought were brilliant ideas. (laughs) <laughs> the all government, so nobody was using it. So I, I had an opportunity. I started working with trucking companies using basically uh, the same math, of course, different application, but the same mathematical principles. And lo and behold, it saves money and they started using it, which was very satisfying. From there, I moved to the customers of the trucking company, to the manufacturers, to the retailers, to the distributors, and optimizing their operations. I, in the process, I started uh, five companies, all were successful. Five companies. Yeah, all were successful, all were sold to bigger companies. Always came back to MIT because I actually like teaching and research. But every time I took a year off, started a company, installed management, and went back to MIT. All the companies were acquired by larger companies.
1: I love that. You're just like, yeah, you know, I started five companies and you know, kept going back. And that's just incredible. to I mean, like to start one company is you must be very organized. You must be very.
0: Uh, I would say that the secret is to have a very understanding wife, which after five companies, she stopped being understanding. and She said, it's one more company or me. So, <laughs> so the fifth company was, but I sold it was the last one. Do you have children? I have two children, one grandchild. Yes. Wow. Wow yeah and and I' have good as, as I said when I, I'm not joking I would say this uh, about my wife because I could have ruined my relationship with children. I work like an idiot I mean worked basically 24/ 7 you know because my wife kept the relationship go- going I could have family life and my children till now don't hate me so it's a, <laughs> a big achievement
1: yeah absolutely. So you've written several
0: books, yeah, all about the supply chain. All about different aspects of supply chains. Two of my books were on uh, risk management and resilience, but one was on uh, the structure of supply chain. Was called cluster. Why places like Memphis, places like Louisville, places like uh, you know LA, you know Atlanta have lots of logistics companies on top of each other. Why companies are attracted to their you know, competitors, and and there's a whole theory behind it of uh, clustering and concentration. I wrote a book on uh, and on sustainability in supply chain, and uh, if I can go into the story of the latest book, just just mention it. So I've, every four or five years, I write a book. I have thirty people involved in these students, uh, postdocs, recent research associates, and I was into one of those in March 2020 was on a book on innovations, on how, you know, blockchain and uh, lots of other things will either will or will not change supply chains.
1: I was going to ask you about that because I'm really interested in blockchain and crypto. So, yeah, later, if we have time, I was going to ask you about that. So anyways, okay. you're researching with, with some students and then then all of a sudden something unexpected
0: happened. Yeah, COVID happened. <laughs> and I realized that the biggest, in some sense, the biggest impact on supply chain in my lifetime. So I just stopped the whole thing, stopped the process, stayed with only two research associates helping organize the material. And uh, since the middle of March until the beginning of August, I basically slept four hours a night, that's 24-7 work. And by then, my children out of the uh, they're not at home anymore. Yeah. So it's <laughs> so it's easier. Also, the fact that I didn't have to commute, I didn't have to go to work, so I had more time, and wrote this book. And this book was very strange because it's like writing a history book while history is still unfolding. It's awesome. So so sometimes I had to change stuff because things didn't happen the way I thought they'll happen. So in June or so, I started talking to publishers, and they say, "Yeah, you know, I don't know if you know it, no, but it takes a year from the time you submit." a manuscript until the publisher puts it out. So I talked to several of them and said, that's ridiculous. A year from now, nobody will remember, nobody even know how to spell COVID or so, I hope at least. Or they won't want to hear about it. I just, for sure, they don't want to hear about it. So I I ended up, to make a long story short, I end up self-publishing. I was talking to one of the CEO, one of these publishers, and I told him, talking to you is like talking to a travel agent before Expedia. Because you do it in a year, Amazon does it in 48 hours. Tell you one thing that amazes me. Massachusetts is the same size of Israel. Okay. Massachusetts is doing now 30,000 in the first week or something like this, 30,000 vaccinations. Right. Israel is doing 150,000 a day. A day. They say that in two and a half months, they'll be out of COVID. The population will be... How can fuck a little country like Israel?
1: They have enough for seven million people right now, or
0: right now they have enough for seven million in Netanyahu. The, the prime minister just announced that they're getting more, so it's uh, They're now doing. Uh, now he's using it politically. Of course, he's in the doghouse politically, so it it helps him. Oh, yes. But it helps him. He's now. If you read, the, if you if you look online, you see a picture of him sitting next to a blackboard saying, "We got four point seven million. We're doing it in one month and all of it." But they're doing. Two doses for two and a, two and a half or two two and a quarter million Israelis in a month, and he said that by three and a half months or so, the entire population will be vaccinated twice. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, it's, Massachusetts is the same number of people, and 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 we will take until September maybe to do it in, on a good day. Really? Oh yes. It's, it's, I it's, thought
1: we were all going to get vaccinated by like like May. Yeah. Okay. Keep thinking, keep thinking the good thoughts. I mean, this, this starts bringing us back to the supply chain and all, yes. you know, you were telling me before about United States were behind as far as we're, we're, we're definitely not getting it done as efficiently as we should. Yeah. Why is that, and why is Israel able to do what they're doing? I mean, this this is supply chain, right? I mean, this, that's, that's what it comes down to.
0: This is uh, Two things, uh, which I'm really, I, I got into it, so I got interested in it. Israel, first of all, seems like did not take options on the vaccine like every other country. Every other country was not sure the vaccine will work or not, so they took an option. Israel just bought them. But apparently, Israeli scientists look at the, the result before the FDA, before anybody said, this is very likely to get the FDA approval. Uh, so Which one just, did they buy? Moderna or Pfizer or both? Both. Mm-hmm. Both. They, they like the mRNA, the, the technology behind, mm-hmm. behind both of them. So they bought, first of all, they got Pfizer. They got $4 million of Pfizer well before the, uh, the FDA approved. They, they, they're in the process of getting another $4 million, another $6 million of uh, of Moderna. And now they are, in today's news, they say they, they didn't say which company, but they say agree to give them more. So mm-hmm. the amazing thing is how fast they do it. So they started with 60,000 a day last Sunday. This Sunday, they did 150,000 a day. They open a lot more clinics in, in Kupot, Cholim. I don't know. It's a local small clinics that they do it. They get to all of them. All the hospitals are doing it. They got several hundred like six or seven hundred military medics, spread them over the country to help hospitals and nurses, and they're just and they're running it now, not quite twenty four seven. They said they are going next week to twenty four seven around the clock. Uh, but the amazing thing they got they had some religious uh, rabbis that were against doing it on the Sabbath. Sure, but the government used a, a rabbinic rule that says that uh, life is more important than anything and say we're doing it on sabbath end of story and they're running five right now they're running 5 a.m to 10 p.m every day and they're going to they said they're going to 24 7 in a week or so
1: but don't they have a problem there also with the pandemic because of the religious huge problem
0: huge problem so so all the more reason they need to do it in fact they just put a lockdown on the country at the same time the country is in a lockdown and now they say it will be a month Lockdown, which is tough uh, because they have a second wave. Right. Well, I mean, anyway, so, so we're going out of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh.
1: But I mean, it seems like. This kind of thing is is what fascinates you, and this is why you do what you do.
0: Yeah, it fascinates me because it it's a challenge. Look, it's always been a challenge. If you look at the you know automotive companies, uh, the, the four you know GM has you know many many plants, uh, sixteen assembly plants, and and also engine plants and transmission plants. They have to make every plant makes can make anywhere depending on the plant can make uh, thousands of cars every day. And each car will have thousands of parts. And everything has to come in the same place at the same time. So it's, it's kind of the same challenge. Um, you have to coordinate everything and do it at the lowest cost, at the exact time when you talk about just in time. In fact, in some sense, the vaccine is easier because nobody's talking about minimizing cost. Yes. It's just get it, get it done. When you talk about, you know, commercial uh, supply chain, you also have to do it at a low cost. <laughs> Otherwise, it doesn't sell and it's meaningless.
1: An FYI to our thousands of listeners out there. We're always looking for new show sponsors, new ideas for episodes, and feedback. Obviously, positive feedback is nice. But if you have some constructive criticism, it's also really good. Feel free to send emails to the contact info on today's machiningworld.com. If they're interesting, maybe I'll read some on the air. Let's talk a little bit about what's in the book. Sure. You talk about the bullwhip effect in the book. Oh, yeah. You know, you you said that to me before this interview. You said, yeah, I think, you know, the tier two and tier three suppliers... That's they. I'm sure they know some of it already. But explain the bullwhip effect and and what you discuss in the book a little bit.
0: Sure. So let's say you are an OEM who sees, let's say, an increase. So you have your forecast. Forecast is X thousand vehicles per week. Now you see suddenly there's a big uptick. You don't understand. You don't know why. But you immediately you order the. You order something from tier one. Who order something from tier two? Order more parts, more stuff, more. But something else happening. For example, assume that tier one sees a 20 percent uptick in the number in the number of, of parts that they are now or, now being ordered. They first of all they have to take it uh, some some of them out of inventory, and then they do something else. They say, well, it's 20 percent up. Maybe the willing the following week will also do 20 percent up they'll order more than 20% from their tier two, which is tier one to them, because they need to fulfill the inv- their inventory and add 20%. So what happens is orders oscillate and go higher and higher as you go up in the supply chain. The opposite happens if people stop buying. People stop buying, suddenly you are. You are. So let's say it's 50% down, which might have happened in this, uh, sure, in this sure. pandemic for many people.
1: 70% down, some, some people told
0: me. Well, yeah. Of course. So let's say one week is boom, 50% down. You are now tier one. You are stuck with a lot of inventory. You are ordering 75% down. And then the other guy in tier three orders nothing because they're, just, they're stuck with so much inventory they have, uh, they have to work through. So what we see is that the changes in orders, in inventory are oscillating higher and higher as you go upstream in the supply chain. So the question is, what can you do about it if you are a tier two, tier three, tier four, whatever, you are deep tiers in the supply chain. The only thing that you can do is make sure that you listen to the final consumer because that's the only signal. Signal is being distorted through the supply chain. But if you always keep an eye on the final consumer, if you, for example, make your tier two, tier three uh, automotive suppliers, you should have favorite several dealership around the country and watch them and be in touch with them and know how much they are selling of the product that your parts get, get into. Because then you see a signal even before or at the same time that the OEM gets the signal. So you are not, you are not overreacting. Up or down and furthermore, we saw in there were many cases documented on the 2008 uh, 2009 financial crisis that when we came out of it people cut down so much that they missed the market when it was going up sure so so you don't overreact up or down and that's how you can deal with it. I mean it's no fun, but you can deal with it.
1: Right. Right. And that's, again, happening in the pandemic. And people are wondering, of course, how much vaccine do they want to make? How much space in hospitals do they want to create? It's everything. Of course. Of course. This brings me to to China a bit. Uh, You've talked a lot about China and you say that they've really gotten their stuff together now as far as.
0: Look, Yes,
1: I'm the last person. Their, their economies are up and their, their, their yes. companies are up and running.:
0: Yes. I am not, of course, nobody who lives in a way in, in the West wants to live in China. It's, it's a repressive, ridiculous regime. And they, of course, they are now jailing journalists who reported that, <laughs> about the Wuhan disaster um, and about what happened with the pandemic. But through unbelievably autocratic measures. They actually closed transportation, they closed housing development, they closed Wuhan. At one point, there were 750 million Chinese under quarantine, basically, or under house, house restrictions. Now, what happened is it killed the pandemic. I know, I know it for a first, cent- and I don't believe the Chinese media at all, but we have a center in China. And I talk to these people once a week, once every other week, and they are now going to restaurant, they're going to movie, they're going to soccer matches.
1: So it's not that they're. we don't know if their vaccine is really any good or not. The, no. It was the social distancing and
0: the... Absolutely. And, and up to now, the unbelievable testing, and tracking and tracing. Now, of course, you live in China, you are always tracked. You're always face tracked, your phone is tracked all the time. So, in that sense, makes it a lot easier to find out the minute that you are testing positive. It's very easy to find out who else you were in contact with and, right. uh, and all that. So, finding other clusters, if they exist, or warning people to stay home is relatively easy. And, and they do it. They still do it. Right. But as far as the companies, the government uh, gave a lot of tax breaks and... Especially, it's really interesting. We talk about the supply chain. The government, the Chinese government understands supply chain. And just when the pandemic started, they gave a lot of uh, help to second and third tier company, to smaller companies, uh, because they figured that those companies are in existential uh, danger. So they, in fact, they can do it only in China. They ask, quote unquote, ask banks, all state-controlled banks, to lend with basically free uh, uh, no interest rate, and they uh, and 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 give loans to whoever is asked as long as they fit the criteria of small and medium manufacturer mm-hmm. in a tier two, three, four in, in in the supply chain. So they understood this and they helped immediately. Isn't that similar to what we did like with the PPP? Not quite. Not quite. A lot of what we did, unlike, it's more similar to what Europe did. Even It's not even similar. Europe supported the big corporations because big corporations have many, uh, many workers. And they supported, They even Germany and Holland changed the rules and supply unemployment to people who are 50% employed. They paid the other 50%, only partial, uh, partial unemployment. They supported the company to keep the people working. In the United States, what we did mostly, the bulk of what we did, is to give money to individuals, not so much to companies. Now, of course, we help companies uh, companies as well, but a lot of what we did is give money to, uh, to individuals, a lot more than Europe. What do you mean Europe. to, to individuals? Oh, you're just saying people, citizens. To citizens, to citizens, yeah. through, through unemployment, through the stimulus we gave. Now, let me say something that at the end of the day, it's not clear who is right. In the following sense, in Europe, there'll be a lot of companies that should not be up anymore. They were badly run and now with government support, they'll continue running as zombies, just like in China. In the US, there's a lot more, you know, sink or swim, destructive, a a, a lot more, you know, positive destruction in the fact that the companies will go out of business. New companies will come. The only problem is the, uh, but that's why we try to support the people when it's done right right now it's not quite uh, uh, it's not done quite right because it creates a lot of misery a lot of people are losing jobs losing homes losing debts. and 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 we, we need to we need to give them a lot more help
1: right you know i just thought of the ppp and i have but you're saying europe it was a lot more
0: Oh no! For the companies, then no you're... comparison. Absolutely, you basically help companies. They didn't so much as help people uh, directly. I mean, indirectly, of course, you help them keep their jobs. So you help
1: right
0: keep companies going. Uh, but you don't have this creative destruction that that does happen in the United States, and it's, it's a significant, you know, personal problem. Looking back,
1: did everything kind of go? As it should have, according to your models, like you look at it. Oh,
0: God. No.
1: (laughs) So what were you most shocked about as far as how, you know, the turn of events with the supply chain?
0: The one item that worked miserably was the medical supplies and PPEs you know, personal protective equipment, the fact that the hospital worker had to work with, uh, without the right mask, without the right gown, without the right gloves. Uh, that's even if they had all the all the medical supplies, but this one was, was the worst. And in the book, I actually suggest how to solve it, how to make sure, because there'll be more pandemics. And the question is how to deal with it in the future. So I actually suggested three Ways of doing it aside from some industries, the government is trying to move some industries back to the U.S. Not sure that this will work or this would even advisable, and we can talk more about it. We used to have a strategic inventory of medical supplies and PPEs. This started during the Clinton administration, was built significantly during the Bush administration, was completely withered away during the Obama administration, and then Trump didn't even know that it's there. I guess, (laughs) but we got. We got to the point where we had no national inventory. So the first thing is to start a national inventory. We don't need it forever. We need to cover about three or four months because industries adjust. We saw it with ventilator. We saw it with masks. We saw it with many other items. You need something while they're adjusting to fill in the crack. Exactly. You need to cover the adjustment period. That's one. Second, you need the hospital. So this should be modeled after the strategic petroleum reserve. Just like we had a strategic petroleum reserve, we should have a strategic you know, medical supply reserve. Second, just like in the, after the 2008, 2009 financial crisis, we did stress tests for bank, we need to do stress tests for hospitals. As the part of the license to operate, they need to keep let's say one month worth of inventory that can cover them no matter what. So they'll be before the country gets organized, they get something. After something else is what we also lack is enough people, enough nurses, enough uh, enough technicians. So in my book, I suggest that modeling after the army national reserve will have a medical national reserve. People who come and you know once uh, mm. one, one a one week in the month come and help in hospitals. Every every uh, every year do three weeks in. Uh, to get trained on new stuff. I'm not saying these are gonna be brain surgeons, but they can release a lot of more experienced nurses and more experienced, you know, technicians to do more important things. And by the way, you can do, you can train somebody to operate a ventilator in days. It's not that complicated. So, but, but you need people who will be doing all the time and get, so anyway, that's uh, so modeling after existing, whether it's the national petroleum, whether it's stress for bank, whether it's the army national reserve, have a system that can help us, that can protect us against something as like this happen again, because almost everything else adjusted, but this was a, this was a disaster.
1: What What advice do you have for tier three, tier two manufacturers, uh, for the next time something like this comes along, or you know, to just prevent, sure, prevent them from getting killed in uh, in a pandemic. I mean, I, I know I read in your book you you compared. I one thing I really thought was was very profound when you said um, the pandemic kind of had the effect on people the same as it had on companies. If you were already weak, yes, then. You were quite susceptible. If you were a smoker, you better
0: quit smoking. <laughs> exactly. And and for companies, it's basically making sure that they are not too leveraged, that they are not mm. uh, they are not in a situation when you are so leveraged that something small can knock you off the pedestal. Uh, it's a it's great it's it, it's a lot of things. it's relationship with banks its relationship with larger companies it's a, it's making sure it's it's basically you know uh business 101 it's not <laughs> i'm sure your listeners are very well, very well versed in all of this because this is your listeners are kind of the backbone of manufacturing in the, yeah. in the united the small manufacturer who make everything so <laughs> i make all the, all the items but other things, being part of a national association, because a, a small manufacturer of five or or, or five hundred people cannot influence policy. But being part of a and, and I'm sure many of your listeners are, being part of a manufacturing association, being able to have a voice in Washington about policies that affect everybody. It's not always that the big OEM Have the same ideas about what should be done like the small manufacturer. Absolutely. We have to protect. As a country, we have to protect it. And it's really unfortunate that big companies can have their lobbyists and can, you know, politicians will listen to them. But some of these big companies, it's amazing to me, some of the companies are full of smart people. Don't understand their dependence on actually on a lot of the small tier two, tier three, tier four manufacturer in the United States.
1: That's interesting. That I mean, I could see that that they don't
0: understand. They're just so everybody's so self-absorbed. Let me explain something and go. And I talk the book a lot about China. So let me talk about another aspect of China. People people want to attract you know uh, manufacturing out of China. They think manufacturing will leave China. It's not going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is because politicians don't understand that it's not the OEM who put the label on the product. It's not the final assembly who put made in China on the product. It can be now made in Mexico, made in the US. That's not it. All the value addition, all the jobs are in the huge ecosystem of supplier and their supplier and their supplier and their supplier. China has this huge ecosystem of good manufacturer, good supplier, and it's hard to extricate The whole ecosystem, they take decades to build and billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. You cannot extricate this. So we have to keep what we have (laughs) in the United States. I mean, because it's it's the ecosystem that's the important thing, not who puts the final label on the... I don't care if all this supplier here will help make BMW cars in Germany. That's fine. But I want all the parts to be made here. All the knowledge, all the innovation about parts to be made here in the United States.
1: Yeah, um, and you don't think reshoring is happening, or as far as you've seen?
0: I don't. I and, and is that
1: because of the infrastructure? Because yes, because so ingrained over there, so it's really hard to
0: people will do it. What I said for sure meaning they may move the final assembly to, you know, Vietnam. So the the, the labels are made in Vietnam, but all the value was made in China. So it's not going to be a big deal at all. I I don't see reshoring. No, but I mean, reshoring here in the United States. Not going to happen. As I say, when everything's said and done, a lot more said than done. It's it's still complicated with all the regulatory process in the United States or in Europe for, you know, for the matter.
1: What's something interesting that you learned last week?
0: Last week? Last week I was uh, in the middle of trying to understand why Israel did so well. (laughs) That's honestly, I spent all of last week. That is a fascinating thing to have learned. But let me give you one. Different thing we talked about it between Israel and the United States. In the United States, before I get the vaccine, I have to fill a whole form that I agree not to sue, that I agree to I agree to. Mm-hmm. In Israel, they said nothing. You show up, it means you agree. You don't agree, don't show up, and that's it. And, it and, and you don't even talk about it. The fact that you show up to get the vaccine means that you agreed. That's it. And, and you cannot sue. You cannot do a, a, anything. You not. You don't want to do it. Don't show up. It's so reasonable and just. <laughs> you <know? laughs> because you spend another five minutes in line it means that there are so many more people so uh, you don't you cannot do as as high a number as you need to do because you spend a long time talking to people too much and getting all this forum and all this.
1: sure and all the Israelis will get angry uh, with, <laughs> if they have to wait too long and you can't get Israelis to wait too long you know this From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and review. And don't forget to tell your friends. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch videos of extended interviews. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is William Steffi. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com.